Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today we are embarking on a journey back in time to a pivotal moment in history, a moment that continues to shape our world today. Imagine a world teetering on the brink of monumental change where the boundaries of science and ethics blur amidst the turmoil of war. This was the world of the 1940s, and at the center of this storm was a figure whose name echoes through history, J. Robert Oppenheimer, immortalized in the Academy Award-nominated film of the same name. In today's special episode, we dive deep into the life and legacy of the man often called the father of the atomic bomb, with Smithsonian associate Alan Pietrobon, a returning guest and audience favorite, will peel back the layers of Oppenheimer's story, exploring not just the scientific genius, but the man behind the myth. We'll delve into his personal struggles, his triumphs, and the weight of the world-changing weapon he helped create. Smithsonian Associate Professor Alan Pietrobon will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of Professor Pietrobon's presentation is J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Age. So please check out our website for details of his full presentation at Smithsonian Associates. But we have Alan Pietrobon today to give us a glimpse of his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Our guest, renowned historian and biographer, Smithsonian associate, Professor Alan Pietrobon, joins us to bring this complex figure to life. Together, we'll journey through the hallowed halls of Los Alamos, answering questions with Smithsonian associate Alan Pietrobon about where secrets of the atomic age were born. We'll confront the moral dilemmas that haunted those who worked on the Manhattan Project, and we'll explore how this era of innovation and fear left an indelible mark on human history. So whether you're a fan of the film, a history buff, a science enthusiast, or someone who appreciates the intricate tapestry of the past, this episode is for you. Stay with us as we uncover the real Oppenheimer, a man whose story is as relevant today as it was over 70 years ago. Please join me in welcoming Smithsonian Associate Professor Alan Pietro. Alan Pietrobon, welcome back to the program. It has been a little while, but I am excited to be back. Yeah, I am excited to talk to you too. Thank you for uh, your willingness to join us and for your your work. I think this is just going to be a fantastic subject. I, I'm really excited to talk to you about J. Robert, J. I'll, I'll say that again, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Age, which is the title of your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Congrats on this work. And um, gosh, I, I, I just 
want to jump right in. I have to tell you, maybe maybe we can start with just a one of those basics. You and I have been through this before, but maybe maybe tell our audience a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And I think you know Zoom is something that we're all you know using, but how will you be using Zoom to engage us? Right, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited too about this particular presentation. My you know, area of expertise generally revolves around foreign policy, but specifically nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policies, which is normally a kind of boring, esoteric subject. And then, bam, there's a Hollywood blockbuster <laughs> about this <laughs> that I can dig into. So, yes, uh, February 20th, that evening, we'll be doing a presentation on this. Um, talking about the, the the life and times and era of, of Oppenheimer, not just a movie review, um, mm-hmm. although it'll be linked to the film, but we'll dive into his his you know deep background of his life and the moment in which he lived and how all these forces interact. Um, and it is online through Zoom, so anyone wherever you're listening from can can watch it. Um, and Zoom can. Sometimes, you know, in this post-pandemic period, be a bit tedious, but we've it, it does allow us to do some really cool things. We've got some great uh, archival photographs and footage and film clips um, that are all integrated into this sort of multimedia presentation. So it should be really engaging and exciting. Yeah, I, I just... I agree with you. I, I have that feeling that it, that it will be. I think the the timing is good. I think we're all very curious about this subject. Of course, the uh, you know the cultural awareness has has jumped um, in a big way, and and the film did a lot to to teach us to tell us more about Robert Oppenheimer. But I wondered if you'll paint a picture for us of the person and and his personality and some of these personal experiences that shaped his work, particularly on the Manhattan Project, is really a, just a fascinating story. Like many people, and not just, you know, many prominent people, but like sort of all of us, he's complicated wow. um, and, and convoluted at times. So I'll talk uh, about the many different facets of Oppenheimer, of course, uh, as the sort of father of the atomic bomb, director of the National Lab at Los Alamos, But we'll also go back and look at Oppenheimer as university professor or mentor to a generation of physics students, who many of whom go on to win prizes of their own. We'll look at him as a public political figure after the war, where he's one of the most famous people for a number of years, you know, a definite household name. We can talk about him as his friends saw him as a charming, brilliant man of unique intellect. Um, And of course, then we've got to balance that out by looking at him as his foes saw him as a caustic, arrogant man with no social skills who really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He was this figure, especially later in life, um, where you either loved him or you hated him. You were on the, the good side or the bad side. And then over all of that, we'll look at his personal life, where He's, it's not as rosy. He's a serial marital cheater. He's kind of a neglectful father, um, has a, uh, a troubled home life uh, and a troubled family life. So it's, we're trying to, I'm going to try to weave all of these facets together to give a full picture and not just the Hollywood treatment uh, of, of this really complicated but uh, respectable and sort of incredible man at the same time. Professionally, he has been 
remembered differently over some time. The media paints a picture today, but that that probably contrasts quite a bit with with his early life professionally. Maybe give us the sense as to how that changed over time and how we look at him. Yeah, this is one of the fascinating aspects. Mm-hmm. It sort of provides, I always see it as like maybe a little bit of hope um, mm-hmm. in that he starts off in his early life. Um, <laughs> the, the way I sort of describe it is like, he's, he's weird. He's <laughs> a bit out there. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He tends to be mean and caustic um, and standoffish in his attitudes. He's in his, his college days, he's a terrible student. His work is sloppy. It's full of mistakes. And because of this, uh, he's at Harvard, but he wants to go to Europe. He wants to go to Cambridge and then to, to Germany where the real quantum physics is happening. They're studying stuff over there that Americans haven't even heard of yet. And, and Oppenheimer is aware of this. So he asks for a letter of recommendation from his professor to go transfer to Cambridge. And this is my favorite part. This is one of these deeply ironic moments in history where his professor writes this, and I'll, I'll quote you here. It says, quote, It appears to me that this is a bit of a gamble as to whether Oppenheimer will ever make any real contributions of an important character. End quote. <laughs> so he writes sort of this anti-recommendation letter um, because it, it highlights that Oppenheimer in his younger years is, is, is not great. He's smart. He knows he's smart. Because of that, he can be kind of egotistical and arrogant. But then he ultimately does end up in Europe where he sort of finds his groove. He excels. He comes back to the U.S., teaches for a little while where same sort of arc at first. He's really terrible. He's mean to his students. He's sort of incomprehensible in lectures. But then he really gathers a following. He, he improves his teaching. He uh, comes to be beloved. Then he ends up, of course, at the Manhattan Project, um, where uh, he is very deeply respected. When you read the reports of people who work there, they almost to a person talk about how the atomic bomb would have happened eventually, but it was really Oppenheimer who had this magnetism about him to bring people together and, and clarify hard ideas. Um, so he goes... You know, becoming then after the war one of the most popular, well-known figures in America to infamously his complete teardown with the security clearance hearings in 1954 where his reputation is destroyed unfairly, um, many would say. And then to, to make a long story short, um, his reputation is, is cleaned up a little bit. And I, I don't mean that as like there's an, uh, an effort to clean it up, but it takes until uh, 2022, just two years ago, when the Energy Department, which now handles nuclear weapons, uh, finally voided his 1954 um, revoking of his security clearance, tried to rehabilitate his image, talked about the uh, immense contributions he had made to the, you know, the, the nation at large. So it's had this sort of bumpy road uh, over over the course of not just his life, but over the course of history, the way we look at him, too. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, 
and everything Smithsonian. As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Alan Pietrobon. Dr. Pietrobon has been uh, with us before, a returning guest, and will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Dr. Pietrobon's presentation is J. Robert Oppenheimer in the Atomic Age. Please check out our show notes for more details about Dr. Pietrobon, his work, and this great upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates, let's talk a little bit about Oppenheimer's role and, in, and in particular, the role that he played really with science and, and global politics almost in the early, early 20th century because that was fundamental in kind of paving this uh, – this development project, uh, the Manhattan Project, and ultimately the atomic bomb. He, he was controversial, as, as you say, but yet he held enough of a presence within the science community to bring this about. How was he able to kind of deal with all the criticism, but yet still perform such a, a an enormous task? His story is one almost of an unlikely figure, um, in a way, he should not have been the director of, of the National Lab. He, as, as a physicist earlier in his career, he published a number of papers, actually sort of an astonishing output of papers as a graduate student. But he, what Oppenheimer lacked was focus. Hmm. He was really excellent at sort of synthesizing large amounts of information, doing some important calculations, sort of opening the door to new research, and then he would get bored, and he'd scrap it and move on. Um, and because of this, as a physicist, he didn't check all the boxes of what we would consider to be like a prominent, important uh, scientist. He never won a Nobel Prize. He didn't really uh, um, publish all that much. But what he did do was, again, open the door that then other scientists would use his research to, to do incredible things with. But himself, he didn't have that focus. It took... Uh, uh, Albert Einstein, I think it was either seven or nine years to come up with the general theory of relativity. Oppenheimer didn't have that patience to do that kind of deep work. But what he was good at is as a manager of people, of sort of hearing all the arguments of convening meetings, uh, listening to all the, the scientific arguments, synthesizing them, and then coming up with an answer, sort of coming up with the next path forward. So it was Oppenheimer, even though, interestingly, he never technically worked on the atomic bomb. He wasn't in the labs. He wasn't doing the, the getting-your-hands-dirty work. But he was able to walk into a, a debate, solve it, and make it very clear what the next step needed to be that then everyone would run with. Mm. And so those who worked with him talked about how it, it was you know, almost single-handedly without him, they would have just hit these log jams that would have been almost insurmountable. He had this incredible ability to bring people together in that way. But unlikely, because when he was selected, a critic of his said, 
uh, that he, you know, he's going to manage the Manhattan Project. That guy can't even manage a hamburger stand. <laughs> it was the quote. <laughs> and often the debate was about the moral questions around the development of the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. And now today we we do look at this in, in the complex manner that it is really to be viewed, that it was a, a very much an ethical um, issue. And, and I, I know it was for those that were working on it. How did Oppenheimer walk that path? Because that was a challenge, I imagine, to get people on board, to keep them on board, but still deal with this issue of what ultimately is going to take place here. Uh, a dilemma I think about a lot, because mm-hmm. it is, as you mentioned, uh, like a complex, difficult thing to, to, to think about. But there are a couple of phases of this. And at first... Um, the, the morality is clear. Mm-hmm. This is a positive thing. We must beat the Nazis. We know they're, well, at least we think we know, that they're working on it. And this, this launches in mid-1942 when the Nazis are winning. They are dominating Europe. And, and it's a horrific thought of if Hitler gets the atomic bomb first, it's over. You know, the world is over. So at first... Um, the, the justification is, is simple for the scientist. Of course, we must do this. And then they arrive at Los Alamos, and, and we have to you know, imagine ourselves in their shoes. These are scientists at a time in America where we did not invest all that much in science. We were not um, obsessed with the STEM fields in the way that we are today. So these, these academics are used to working in, you know, dark, damp basement labs at a university, mm. constantly struggling for funding. And they arrive at one of the world's most advanced laboratory where whatever piece of equipment they want, they get. They have unlimited funding. And they're told, spend your days working on whatever piece of this interests you the most. Mm. They are ecstatic to be working there. <laughs> I mean, this is an incredible opportunity. Um, but then it's, so that's like sort of phase one of everyone's marching towards the, the right moral goal here of defeating the Nazis. But the story changes when it becomes clearer and clearer that a, the Nazis, we later find out have actually given up their nuclear project. They, they aren't investing in it. Um, and that they're going to be defeated before the war ends. Um, sorry, they're, they're going to be defeated before the bomb is ready. And so, um, we're going to be left with an atomic bomb. The purpose for which it was developed is no longer there. And at that point, a lot of the scientists, by no means a majority, not even close, but large numbers start questioning more, start holding meetings, talking about whether what they're doing is right. Um, you know, we developed it to beat the Germans and we have already beat them. Now, the problem is Oppenheimer is not on board with that questioning. There, there's a, um, an effort to try to get to Truman to convince him not to use the bomb on Japan, and Oppenheimer shuts this down. And here's the fascinating part that I'll sort of wrap on on this question. Oppenheimer, he, he although after the war becomes known as sort of an anti-nuclear campaigner, he pushes back. At that moment, he is all for this. He is selecting targets. He's to the very last day in the lab, helping to tweak the bombs with, so it explodes with more explosive force. Because what he believes is the worst possible outcome is that the war comes to an end 
before the bomb is used. He wants this thing used because what he believes is if the war ends and we don't use the bomb, the U.S. is going to keep it a secret. We're going to keep developing it, make it more and more powerful, build more and more of them. And then when the next war comes along, we won't hesitate to use it because there won't be this like searing imprint of knowledge of what an atomic bomb does. So he wants to use the bomb before the war ends because he thinks that the world will be so shocked, so horrified by this superweapon that they will immediately band together to outlaw nuclear weapons. Hmm. And that might seem like yeah. a, a pipe dream. It might seem like wishful thinking. But in the context of the time, he actually has a good reason to believe this. There is precedent because it's what happened after World War I. The world was so horrified and shocked by the use of chemical gases and mustard gas and such that shortly after the war, they formed an international treaty to ban the use of chemical weapons. And he, Oppenheimer has that hope that that's what's going to happen here. We have to scare everyone so much so that we will never use these weapons again. Yeah, that's not how it turned out, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> sadly. Uh, so in your opinion, Alan Pietrobon, how how did working on such a monumental yet devastating project affect, impact uh, the personal lives and the psyches of the scientists involved there at, at uh, Los Alamos? It's, it's hard to say, um, partly because Oppenheimer didn't make, you know, what I just explained there, it wasn't as explicit at the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. This is what he would later describe mm -hmm. was his thinking. Mm -hmm. There were some who, who outright said, we, we cannot use this. There were some sort of like more consensus was we do have to use it partly because we want to see if it works. You know, we, we want this to, to happen, but we need to do a demonstration explosion. We need to invite the Japanese, blow it up in front of them and say, if you don't surrender, we're going to do this to you. You know, some, some formula of that, or we need to warn them first, but overall, so there were these groups, again, not the majority. The, the fact of the matter is only a single scientist, quit um, in protest. Mm. Um, after, after Germany was defeated, one resigned. Mm. Everyone else kept working towards this end. <laughs> yeah, it is just an amazing story. Uh, final question for you, Dr. Pietrobon. What can we learn from the Manhattan Project, from Oppenheimer himself, from his story, um, this era of the atomic age, that um, can guide us a bit today uh, you know, as we're we're thinking about some of these issues, uh, you know, there are so many, so many press, pressing issues on us today, and many of them have to do with global warfare. Wh what is it that we can take away from the Manhattan Project and apply? Ooh, this question is so hard <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I, I think about this all the time, and and it's partly hard because my own thinking has changed in the past few years. Mm. On one hand, I would say part of the reason I got into the field of teaching international relations and foreign policy was because I believed that war was never the answer. Mm -hmm. so, you know, diplomacy is the way that wars end, and it's the way you prevent wars. So that's what I would have taught my students. I mean, it's what I still do teach my students. But a couple of years ago, I would have described myself as a pretty heavy pacifist. And I, I struggled with this over the years because I wrote a book uh, a year or two ago about um, a, a prominent pacifist, Norman Cousins, who 
was known as this anti-war activist. But as I dug into his earlier history, I came to learn that when World War II broke out, he was all for it. He was for the firebombing of cities. When the Korean War broke out, he was for 100% the Korean War. And I couldn't square that circle of how does this prominent peace activist be pro-war at the same time? And then, uh, you know, so here I am describing myself as a pacifist, and then Russia invades Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it makes sense to me how someone like Oppenheimer can make that transition too. Someone like Norman Cousins can make this transition that when there's a clear uh, delineation here of right and wrong and one side's, you know, has to be stopped, then maybe pacifism doesn't work anymore in that Norman Cousins would say this privately that, um, you know, it's well and good to be a pacifist up until the moment the violence breaks out. And then suddenly you have to reconsider this. And I think Oppenheimer went through that transition. He's in it for the science. He's in it to defeat the Nazis. He, he wants the bomb to, to be used to shock the world because then we'll come together and, and end this. Um, and then it, we don't come together. In fact, we go the opposite direction. We start an arms race. And I think that's when the calculation changes for Oppenheimer, where he becomes sort of depressed. I mean, there is this period of, of I could only describe it as depression after the war when we're now in the Cold War with the Soviets. He's trying to raise the alarm. He's speaking out against the development of the hydrogen bomb, a far more powerful bomb. And ultimately, he loses his career um, over this because the U.S. government steps in to silence him in the most public and embarrassing and humiliating way. And he just retreats after that. So I, you know, the, the question I've been <laughs> rambling about that you asked of mm -hmm. what can we learn about this? I think, you know, two things. I think it's really complicated in these troubling situations where you're dealing with war and peace, life and death, you know, morals and ethics. And I think it helps from with the benefit of history and, and historical hindsight to step back. Maybe we owe people like Oppenheimer a little bit of grace to, you know, understand that they were dealing with this in the midst of a war and the calculation is just different than us sitting here having a lovely, delightful conversation um, about the topic, you know, 70 years later. So I wish I had some sage advice to offer having studied this, but I, it's, it's really hard. <laughs> hard, but, but great talking to you and congratulations on this, this upcoming presentation. I do think it's going to be fascinating. It was just a, a remarkable project in, in the Manhattan project, just an amazing scientific feat, uh, ethical and moral dilemmas, espionage, all of these great things that Alan Pietrobon will be talking about at his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Thank you again for your time today. It's always good to talk to you, and um, this will be a, uh, a wonderful presentation. But uh, um, have a great rest of your day. I look forward to seeing you at Smithsonian Associates, but uh, thanks, Dr. Pietrobon. Thank you so much for having me. It always really is a delight to talk to you. I love <laughs> I love coming on and, and, and sharing all this information. Uh, well, thank you. We, we love hearing it. This is the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast where history comes alive and we celebrate the richness of experience and knowledge that comes with age. Thank you for joining us on this journey brought to you today by Smithsonian Associates. Smithsonian Associate Professor Alan Pietrobon has been our guest today. 
Professor Pietrobon will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his presentation is J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Age. So please check out our website for details of his full presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Thank you to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. Thank you to our wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Interview Series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. and We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Interview Series on radio and podcast. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notold-better.com. Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on community radio.